X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, July 24th. And what is Friday? It is a wonderful day to rate and review and subscribe and share with friends The Local. The best, if we do say so ourselves, daily news podcast in our city. It helps that there's not a ton of them. It's really hard to do. We need your help to make it bigger. Okay, here we go. And in your review, if you want to come up with a slogan for the local or its best one-sentence descriptor, we'll say it on podcast. Be nice, please. Be extra, extra nice. Today, back in the day, July 24th, 1974, the United States Supreme Court unanimously ruled Richard Nixon must turn over the Watergate tapes. The court wrote, Neither the doctrine of separation of powers nor the generalized need for confidentiality can sustain an absolute unqualified presidential privilege. What does that mean? Well, it's one way of saying that the president is not above the law. Turning over the tapes is a crucial step in the late stages of the Watergate scandal and the end of the Nixon presidency. And today, back in the day, July 24, 1978, National Lampoon's Animal House, filled in Eugene, Oregon, premiered in New York City. In August, the movie had its Oregon premiere in Portland with many of the extras from Eugene and Cottage Grove in attendance. And while the house in Eugene is now demolished, you can still take an Animal House tour and revel in the humor, the nostalgia, the toxic masculinity, or all of the above. We'll start with your quick six news headlines. Alex Zielinski, the news editor of the Portland Mercury, will bring a focus on the local protests. And we'll have an interview with Catherine McDowell, VP of Policy with the Oregon ACLU, on the current legal actions related to federal presence in local protests and the two big policy proposals the ACLU is pushing. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Mayor Ted Wheeler attended a protest on Wednesday night. He got tear gassed. He left. Wheeler joined the protesters downtown, called for federal officers to leave Portland. Members of the crowd questioned Wheeler's response to demands of the protest. Some called for him to resign. Wheeler told protesters he has no intentions to defund the police bureau. He will also not be handing the bureau over to Joanne Hardesty. At around 11 p.m., tear gas is deployed into the crowd by federal officers. Mayor was not wearing a gas mask, unlike many in the crowd. And in a video posted on Twitter, Wheeler said the gas stings and that he, quote, saw nothing that provoked the response. Wheeler left the protest shortly after being gassed. And about an hour after the mayor left, the Portland police declared the scene a riot. So to be clear, the federal officers tear gassed the place. And an hour later, it was determined to be a riot. And as Alex Linsky explained to us in our interview with her, she was interviewing Ted Wheeler at the time he was tear gassed, meaning she was tear gassed, too. Stay tuned for my interview with Alex. Also on Wednesday, Portland police were ordered to end their cooperation with federal officers. The city council voted unanimously to cease communication between Portland police and federal officers. Federal officers were seen pointing guns at the crowd on Monday. Another resolution was proposed by City Commissioner Chloe Udaley regarding the use of force against members of the press and other legal observers. Commissioner Hardesty said she had been told by Portland Police Bureau Chief Chuck Lavelle that he did not believe the media had the right to record police activity during protests. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice Inspector General is investigating federal agents' improper use of force in Portland protests. Michael Horowitz opened the investigation after the protest in which Mayor Wheeler was tear-gassed. The review will cover federal agents' use of force in both Portland and D.C. over the past two months. It'll focus on the use of tear gas and the, quote, less lethal munitions like rubber bullets. You've seen those things? They're pretty big. They're not like little bullets made out of rubber. They're like big things. Big bullets made out of rubber. Joseph Kafari, the inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security, is leading a separate investigation. His office is going to look into the illegal detaining and transporting of protesters by officers on July 15th. 
And along the way, Congressman Earl Blumenauer spoke up in defense of riot ribs. Here's his quote, The needless damage that Trump's secret police did to riot ribs, a volunteer-led effort to feed and supply protesters and those in need, shows just how morally bankrupt and cruel this occupation is, end quote. He then announced he was making a donation to riot ribs and plugged the riot ribs Venmo. Today at noon at Pioneer Square and at 845 at Lounsdale Square, lawyers are gathering to protest wearing suits. The United States has hit 4 million COVID cases, again logging 1,000 new deaths. 331 new cases and two new deaths in Oregon. The state's total is now 15,713, and 273 people in Oregon have died of COVID-19. A reminder, the Governor Brown has set new COVID guidelines. Although Oregon is not shutting down gyms, as California and Arizona have done, all Oregonians must wear masks when they go to the gym beginning today. That eliminates a previous face-covering exemption for people strenuously exercising. Governor also announced that children ages 5 and older must wear masks in public starting today. That covers indoor public spaces such as malls and schools, and outdoors they can't stay 6 feet away from folks. Brown also said she is considering limiting tourism for other states into Oregon, particularly if they're coming from coronavirus hotspots elsewhere in the country. Careful, Floridians. We've got our eyes on you. We know you've got Damian Lillard hostage, but we've got our eyes on you. And meanwhile, a right-wing nonprofit has challenged the governor's mask order. The Freedom Foundation has asked an Oregon court to throw out the order requiring that masks be worn indoor and outdoors when social distancing is not possible. They questioned Brown's decision, claiming it infringed on constitutional rights, like the right to die of a communicable disease. That's not part of the argument. The group is requesting a period of public comment on mask rules. Meanwhile, protesters on Amity Island are demanding the right to swim in the ocean despite a shark warning. Better get a bigger boat. The CARES Act spending plan was approved by the Portland City Council on Wednesday. It involves the spending of $114 million of federal coronavirus relief funds. $101.1 million will go to community programs in Multnomah County and neighboring cities. This includes $15 million in cash assistance, $12 million in business grants, $3.5 million towards Chromebooks and free internet vouchers to families without internet access, and some more stuff. $12.9 million in federal funds, and potentially another $6.1 million will go to Portland's COVID-19 response. Another $6.1 million will come from city funds and federal reimbursement from FEMA. Money dedicated to household or business relief will be distributed with a priority towards black, indigenous, and other people of color. Jim Brumberg, who you heard here in an interview, praised the city council, specifically Chloe Daly, and also Mara McLaughlin of Music Portland for advocating for venues in the package. And in election news, Portlanders have begun receiving their ballots for the open city council seat. On Wednesday, the first ballots arrive for that special runoff election on August 11th. Wow, that's soon. The vote will fill the city commissioner number two seat. The seat was left vacant after Commissioner Nick Fish, rest in peace, passed away in January. Dan Ryan, first-time candidate, former education nonprofit executive, Loretta Smith, former Multnomah County commissioner. Voters have until August 6th to mail in their ballots, after which you got to drop them off in a drop box. And in nearby East Multnomah County, Gresham voted Vincent Jones Dixon to be the new city councilor. The Gresham City Council voted unanimously for Jones Dixon. He fills the vacant seat formerly held by the newly elevated mayor of Gresham, Carolyn Nichols. She took office after Shane Bema stepped down in the wake of critiques of police practices. Jones Dixon is the city's first black counselor in over 30 years. And spanning back to look at an issue of political impact for the whole state, 
Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum lost her bid to block signature gathering for the redistricting initiative. As I said before, I think that's the biggest thing on the ballot in Oregon, and it's going to be on the ballot. The initiative would remove from the legislature the power to draw districts. At stake is probably whether a new congressional seat in Oregon is a Democratic seat or a Republican seat. It'll also have huge impacts on state legislative races. Republican Secretary of State Bev Clarno followed a court order to significantly reduce the signature gathering threshold for the initiative due to COVID-19. A piece of it I thought was interesting. The Carter-appointed judge and the Clinton-appointed judge sided with Republican Bev Clarno. The Bush-appointed judge sided with Democrat Ellen Rosenblum. And now it looks extraordinarily likely that the initiative will head to the ballot because instead of having to turn in over 140,000 valid signatures, they only have to turn in like 57,000 valid signatures. Oregon schools have released updated guidelines for reopening in the fall. As I said, children five and above have to wear face masks in schools. Five million face masks donated by FEMA will be distributed to teachers and students by the Oregon Department of Education. The ODE will no longer drop students from the attendee role after 10 days of absence. The OEA Oregon's Teachers Union praised the guidelines. Here's a quote. Nobody wants to get students back in the classroom more than educators, but we have to make sure we are taking the appropriate steps. Meanwhile, over 9,000 parents and educators are calling for 14 days of no new cases before reopening schools. They're organizing through a Facebook group called Oregon for a Safe Return to Campus. The group is asking Governor Brown to agree to wait for 14 days of no new cases before school can return in person. Organizers say they want to return to class but are concerned for the safety of students and staff. The group is planned for a day of action on July 27th to call attention to their demands. And let's be clear, once August hits, one of the main discussions in the whole country is going to be the school reopening. Some good news. The Great American Outdoors Act is, in fact, going to get passed and signed. It was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives on Wednesday. as hailed as an important environmental bill. It'll secure permanent funding for the Land Water Conservation Fund. The fund uses revenue from the oil and gas industry to support national parks and historic sites. Oregon alone has a maintenance backlog of over $127 million. Senator Ron Wyden calls the bill the ultimate game plan for economic success in rural Oregon. By the way, according to the Oregon Outdoor Industry Association, $16.4 billion in annual consumer spending and 172,000 jobs are created statewide through outdoor recreation. It's summer in Oregon, and it is a beautiful place here. Enjoy the great outdoors. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, was interviewing the mayor about tear gas as he was tear gassed on Wednesday. Here is her first-hand account. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. What did how we learn? You? Uh, you know, how am I? How am I? Holy mackerel. It is a terrifically... a question. I'm sorry. No, it's a fair, it's a fair question. Uh, the, it is a really stressful time, and that stress, I, I now I'm seeing more signs of it impacting areas around me. Uh, and, yeah. and that's... Uh, whereas, I think in the early phases, it was like, okay, you know, people were sort of focused on it. And now... I think the the leaking out of stress I'm seeing in in areas that I hadn't seen it before. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, I hear you. So I think that's what I'd say about that. But were you there last night? Were you at the protest last night, or did you have to yeah, make sure you were awake? Say, I was going to say maybe a more important thing to start with is that I was interviewing Ted Wheeler last night as we both were getting tear gassed, and um, you know, steps from the federal courthouse, and um, which I'm still you know trying to unpack. <laughs> I didn't know um, that. So you were there. You you were there interviewing him. I knew that Ted yeah. Wheeler had got tears. I didn't know you were standing right there. You're asking a question. What were you asking him? And then what happened when y'all got gassed? 
Yeah, well, I so I got up there after the first, uh, there was like the first volley of tear gas, and then I heard Ted Wheeler was up there, and I elbowed my way in. And, uh, yeah, I was there with a couple other local reporters asking him about um, why, how does he feel about, uh, you know, the use of tear gas now that he's been tear gassed, which he wouldn't, he wouldn't explicitly say he wanted to ban. Uh, it honestly was kind of this remarkably the same line that he's given us before about, well, I need to still look into it, you know, as this kind of like snot running down his face. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I got to do some more research. I did a little bit just now by tasting the yeah. stuff, but I still want to do some more research. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think the remarkable thing for me as someone who's been covering these protests from, the, from day one is uh, hearing the mayor say, look around and say, you know, okay, I see some people throwing off fireworks. I see some um, some folks banging on this fence. Or like, I don't see the, the use of force by federal police um, proportionate to the the quote-unquote kind of violence that we're seeing from members of the public, um, which remarkably, the actions that he's talking about is exactly when why his police force, why the Portland Police Bureau decide to use tear gas and munitions and rubber bullets on members of the public. And so it was a very weird moment where, you know, it seemed like he had put blinders on for just the federal police that, you know, this is something that uniquely the federal officers are doing. You know, you had all these national media there um, kind of, uh, you know, using him as this, like, icon of, of the resistance, uh, saying, hey, look, look at this, this uh, progressive mayor who's being tear gassed by, by the Trump administration, basically, and, like, won't have it anymore. When this is someone, this is a mayor who has spent the past 50 57 days allowing his police officers to use the same indiscriminate force on members of the public um, and so hearing him admit that uh, not admit that necessarily but admit that hey this might not be right <laughs> um, was yeah it was pretty remarkable Wow. So he was you're saying he has a double standard between how he interacts with the local police bureau and how he how he feels about it, interacts with the federal. Oh, definitely. Police and bureau. we've seen that, you know, we've okay, seen that on national true. media for the past week where he's gone and, and, you know, condemned and decried Donald Trump for the, the ways federal officers are treating Portlanders. I mean, to be fair, Portland police officers are not, to my knowledge, Snatching people off the street and putting them in vans in rental cars, um, but, yeah, right. But but they and Portland police, uh, you know, have some kind of accountability system that we know how to operate as members of the public, um, and that's something that the federal police we have no idea really what to even like how to even unpack why they use munitions and and, and who uh, you know who they're trying to target and what the purpose is. Um, but the basic you know, crowd control munitions and, and, and weapons used against large demonstrations. You know, there's no difference between what the city is using and what the what the feds are using. I mean, maybe the, the feds have a bigger budget, so they have more tear gas they can use in one one go. But, um, but yeah, the, there's little light between the two. I mean, aside from also the fact that the Portland police have these kind of legal constraints now, uh, based on a number of lawsuits against them for the way that they've been treating protesters. So 
they're a little bit more limited in how and when they're able to use, um, you know, these kind of crowd control tools. Um, but yeah, it is it is a contradiction that you know I think myself and local journalists and independent journalists are really really trying our our best to explain to the to the readers outside of Oregon, but also you know at the end of the day, uh, my audience is. is is Portland. <laughs> and so being able just to clarify this for folks here is really important. Thank you yeah. so much, Alex Zelensky, as we wrap up and run out of time. Thank you yeah. so much for your just pace setting reporting and for spending the time here with us this morning. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Catherine McDowell, VP of Policy at the Oregon ACLU, is here. Catherine brings perspective on expectations for the mayor, policy priorities for the ACLU, holding police accountable, and levers for change. Here are Catherine and Jefferson Smith. Joining us now is Catherine McDowell. She is the VP of Legal Affairs and Lawyers Committee Chair for the ACLU. She's been a cooperating attorney with the ACLU of Oregon for 30 years. And we're going to talk now about the lawsuit that just got filed against the state regarding federal agents unlawfully, excuse me, unlawfully detaining journalists. We're going to talk about that and more. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. How did you get involved in the ACLU? What was it? Was it right out of law school? What drove you to do it? You know, um, I came to Oregon in 1988, and I took on my first ACLU case at that point. I mean, I was always um, interested in using my law degree to protect uh, people's civil liberties and civil rights. And when I came to Oregon, I got to work with the ACLU. And let me just say... um, just to correct uh, the introduction, I'm actually the current vice president of policy for the ACLU. I used to be the um, chair of legal affairs, but I'm now serving as the vice president of policy. So I can speak to both policy and litigation. Although it might be a little bit a little bit specific, help us understand the difference, the, the different roles you have had. What's the, is there a firewall generally between the policy choices and the legal actions? Say more about that. You know, that's a really good question. There is, um, you know, a lot of overlap. Our policy work tends to focus on work at the legislature and um, with cities and counties in terms of enacting legislation and um, government policy. Our litigation work is what it sounds like. Those are the lawsuits we file to protect and vindicate people's constitutional rights. You're now doing the. You're now working on policy as well. We got a text in from a listener. Why are people so mad at Ted Wheeler? You know, people have been protesting now for over fifty days, and in the majority of those days, their protests against police brutality have been met with police brutality. Ted Wheeler is the um, commissioner in charge of the police, and so people are angry. People are angry that. He um, talks um, a moderate uh, talk, but when he's in charge of the police um, and the police act in the way they've been acting toward protesters, people see a lot of hypocrisy there. What is the ACLU's expectation for a mayor in this context? Well, we'd like to see um, Ted Wheeler um, 
really work to support the work of protesters. Um, the role of protesters in our society is so critical. And especially when you have protesters protesting against police brutality, it has got to be met with restraint and de-escalation tactics by the Portland Police Bureau. And, and that's just not been the case. And we have, um, as a part of uh, our programming, we have a core of legal observers who are out at the protests every night documenting what they see. And what they've seen, frankly, is um, a disproportionate and forceful response um, to nonviolent protesters. And, and that's pretty much on a nightly basis. What does supporting protesters look like from the mayor's position? He is, and I don't mean from his opinion, but when you imagine what does a mayor supporting a protest look like? As I understand it, he was at the protest Wednesday night. Yeah, that's um, what I've heard. I mean, I guess that's a start. It would have been helpful um, to have him there, um, you know, many weeks ago so he could really witness um, what, um, the police response has been to nonviolent peaceful protesters and how it feels to be in a crowd and be rushed by police in riot gear and to be tear gassed. I mean, I think, um, you know, you can distance yourself from it, but that's what's going on. I mean, people are going out to peacefully protest against systemic racism and uh, police brutality, and they're really being met on a regular basis with police brutality. And I would say it's only escalated. Um, it started with the Portland Police Bureau. It's now been joined by federal um, agents, and it's just gotten more and more dangerous and more and more difficult for people to go out and express their views, which is um, certainly, in the ACLU's opinion, protected by the First Amendment and other aspects of the Constitution. I'm seeing a release just recently, very recently, from the ACLU, uh, and for those who want to make sure they understand that it stands for the American Civil Liberties Union, that y'all have filed alongside Perkins Coie, I think, a lawsuit uh, about the treatment of medics at protests. I think you also, I don't know if it's the same lawsuit or a different one, have a lawsuit going after the treatment of journalists at the protests. What's the suite of legal actions ACLU is engaged in right now? Well, the, um, you know, I think that's the right word. There is and will continue to be a suite of lawsuits um, related to the protests that are going on in Portland. Um, currently, the ACLU has a suit, as you mentioned, on behalf of journalists and legal observers um, to protect them from being targeted and from being dispersed um, if there's a riot declaration or an unlawful assembly declaration. Um, the point is that journalists and legal observers need to be there to observe and document how police are dispersing crowds. That is the moment at which um, the police violence toward protesters occurs as they're being tear gassed or rushed out of an area. So um, our lawsuit was designed to ensure that in those moments, protesters and legal observers are allowed to remain and document what they see, that they're no law, you know, that they're not pushed out alongside um, protesters so that they can't document what's going on. So that lawsuit was originally filed in June. We added um, the federal government um, actors who are now important to that lawsuit um, about a week ago, and we're in front of a judge actually today 
um, to try to get the injunction that we have against the city of Portland to apply also to the federal government. So, um, you know, that's the latest in that lawsuit. Um, we have an injunction now in place against Portland Police Bureau through October to prevent them from targeting or harming uh, media and legal observers. And our um, hope is that after today, we'll have the same injunction in place against the federal government. What's the legal tool? What's the piece of the Constitution or the piece of federal law that ends up being the most important lever that the ACLU has? Of course, there are First Amendment protections, Fourth Amendment protections. I don't know if each of those are the yield, the right of action that you also need. Walk us through, get us a little bit nerdy on understanding the contours of these lawsuits. Yeah, well, let me, um, you know, I will say the First Amendment is, you know, the source of our right to protest, our right to assembly, to and really our right to, you know, express ourselves um, and to dissent against government conduct. So that is the heart of all of the lawsuits. And um, let me just quickly respond back to your previous question about the other lawsuit that we oh, just please, please. yesterday. So we, um, in addition to uh, wanting to make sure that journalists and legal observers can play their role they need to play to keep protests safe and supported. We also filed a lawsuit yesterday on behalf of medics um, to ensure that they can do their work without um, being subject to um, you know, police uh, brutality and to dispersal. It's exactly the same theory that when medics are needed most is when the police are trying to disperse crowds or um, you know, are engaged in some way with crowds. Those are, those are the moments when people are being seriously injured and there have been really appalling injuries um, caused by police at these protests. And the medics are there, you know, on the scene right away, volunteers, I mean, really courageous folks um, trying to, I mean, literally save lives um, at these protests. And they've been met with really brutality. I mean, these medics have been beaten. They have been, um, you know, flashbangs have been shot at them. Um, they've obviously been subject to tear gas. So our lawsuit on behalf of the medics based, again, on principally on First Amendment, but also, um, you know, other other legal theories is designed to get the same kind of injunction that we have now protecting the media and legal observers to protect medics. And we're seeking an injunction both against uh, Portland police and against the federal government. So that case was just filed yesterday. And this might dovetail with a question that I asked about kind of what's the lever, but what's the uh, level of accountability? What is the remedy if, let's say, the uh, officer's uh, violate the injunction. Mike Simon, federal judge, puts on an injunction and they do something anyway. What happens then? Well, we go back to court and yeah. we say to the judge, here's your injunction and here's the conduct that violates it, and then we ask the judge for relief. So, you know, it just depends on what um, what occurs, but, you know, I think we, we should as, as um, you know, community members be able to expect that our law enforcement uh, officers are going to follow injunctions entered by a court. So if the court says, you know, no use of force, no dispersal orders against these folks, we expect the uh, law enforcement um, community to understand 
that injunction and to follow it. And if they don't, we'll go back to court and ensure that they do. What's the hardest part of winning these things? Is it standing? Is it just making sure there's time on the docket? What's What are you up against? Well, I think what's disappointing is that, uh, you know, at least at the outset, the government opposes these uh, requests. I mean, we shouldn't have to go to court to begin with, right? These are, you know, these are not, we're talking about protecting people who are not protesters. They're by definition not doing anything um, illegal or unlawful. And, you know, the city did, I mean, to its credit, yesterday passed a resolution saying um, you should not be targeting um, or in any way policing the conduct, um, the supportive conduct of legal observers and journalists. But even though they passed that resolution yesterday, they opposed our lawsuit when we first filed it. So, you know, I think, you know, we we would like to see, um, you know, when we go to court and say these are the First Amendment rights of, um, you know, community members of Cortland, we'd like to see the government say, yeah, you're right. But they don't. Um, we do have to litigate it, and we are definitely, um, you know, the federal government has opposed our request to have that injunction apply to them. I mean, I, it doesn't seem hard to me to say, okay, we won't attack medics, we won't attack journalists, we won't attack legal observers, but, you know, we're not getting that kind of response. What we get typically is, oh, that's too hard. And we don't think it's too hard. These people are well marked. So, you know, I guess the first, the first, Frustration is that so their argument. Their argument is that they can't tell who the medic is, who the legal observer is, who the journalist is, versus who the be masked hooligan is, or who the otherwise protester is. And you're saying, yeah, you can tell. Right. I mean, we think that's totally protectual. You, you know, legal observers, and according to Judge Simon's um, injunction, he describes exactly how they're marked. National Lawyers Guild wears green hats. ACLU blue vests. Medics have red crosses. You know, they never go out there without some marking showing that they're a medic with a red cross. So, so you know, I, I, I think actually it's a pretty pathetic thing if our police force say we can't, um, <laughs> we can't discern between peaceful and non-peaceful folks or violent and non-violent folks. I mean, that's their job. And there's certainly legal observers are out there with, you know, phones to record what they're seeing. You know, journalists are out there with their cameras and their mics and um, medics are out there with their medical bags. It's not hard to, um, you know, discern who those folks are and ensure that um, they're, you know, folks, those folks are able to do their jobs at protests. So, so I guess that's the first tier. And then, you know, certainly, you know, any lawsuit um, which is opposed in the way these are, are going to raise the counter arguments about why, um, you know, the government should be able to, um, you know, control and patrol these protests. We think, you know, the First Amendment, um, thankfully, is a very broad and strong um, provision, and we think it protects the rights of folks to protest in the way they've been protesting. So that's sort of our beginning and our end is the First Amendment. We are also, you know, arguing Fourth Amendment issues with respect to how protesters are being swept up. Um, and uh, I know there's lawsuits that have recently been filed. Um, there was a lawsuit earlier this week by Western State Center arguing Tenth Amendment issues that the state should be able to police itself. 
um, and the federal government does not have policing authority within the states. So a number of legal theories have been brought up, and um, you know all of those cases are going to court sometime in the next week, this week, next week, and then I expect there'll be more cases um, to follow because I think as long as um, we're seeing the kind of conduct we're seeing, both by the Portland police and by the federal officials who are now in town, the federal agents now in town, I think you're going to see folks in court um, trying to protect people's First Amendment rights. Catherine McDowell, the ACLU, thank you so much talking for talking with us about the suite of suits. Thanks to Alex and Catherine for joining The Local, and big thanks to our production team. Editors Will Romy and Jonathan Covington-Brem, thank you so much. And writers Kate Kay, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Ambush, Julie Oppenheimer, Jonathan Covington-Brem, Joey Palchik, Carly Quadros, Jalisa Ringering, Sam Smargiasi, and writer Sherwood. Thank you also to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks and original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, The New York Times, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, The Lamont Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, The Ben Bulletin, Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Street Roots, KGW, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and The Portland Mercury. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you on Monday. X-Ray.